Welcome back to the Chartwell Chronicles. I'm Colin Davis. I am Brittany Atkinson. On this month's podcast, we are going to discuss the different scenarios that we see when a claim petition is filed. We will talk through how we handle them and what we need from your end so that we can ultimately get the shut get to shutting down the case as quickly as possible. Just a reminder, Chartwell is more than just workers' compensation insurance defense. We have 30 different state admissions and 24 office locations, which you can easily find on our website at chartwelllaw.com. When our office first receives a claim petition, this is really the first interaction we have with the carrier and the, adjust, the adjuster about a specific accident. A lot of different information can be ascertained about the claim at this point. Claim petitions are filed at many different periods throughout a claim. Sometimes it's immediately following an accident or it's after all the treatment has occurred, but most of the time we receive a claim petition somewhere in the middle. So when a claim petition comes in, um, sometimes we have a lot of information and other times the claim petition itself might be the first notice of the accident. So we have very little information to go off of. And typically there's three different ways that we will file an answer. The first, the easiest way, your accepted case. Um, so we will file an answer accepting the claim as compensable, um, but of course, leaving the petitioner to his proofs for any permanent disability. Um, the second is you know, your standard denial of compensability. So whether it's denying for coverage or that an injury occurred out of the course and scope of employment, um, we'll specify that in our answer. Um, and the third way is when we really have that, you know, very little information about the claim, um, you know, perhaps the claim petition was the first notice of injury, we will actually go ahead and file an answer that the claim is under investigation. So we're not really accepting it or denying it. We're sort of um, leaving, um, leaving it open so that we can um, perform investigation. And per, per the workers' compensation rules, an answer is due within 30 days of the filing of the claim petition. But it is important to answer the claim petition as quickly as possible. This is needed so that we can appear before the judges. Also, our office typically has a policy that we like to answer all claim petitions within 48 hours of receipt, which is a very useful getting us on the claim. There are also times that the claim petition is listed before we've ever received it. On certain claims, the judges will give us a call advising that a carrier we usually represent has an unanswered claim. This helps us know a claim is pending and also allows us to inform the carrier. Other times, we do not find out until a motion, default, motion to default is filed. So a motion for default is usually filed if a claim petition goes unanswered for an extended period of time. It's very rare that a judge is going to hear the motion for default, and what is normally done um, is sort of what Colin just touched on. The court or the judge will actually contact the attorney that typically handles a specific carrier's um, cases to sort of flag that a claim petition has been left unanswered, and this sort of gives us the opportunity to contact um, an adjuster that we know or the carrier to sort of let them know that there is this unanswered claim petition hanging out there. Um, the judges really promote giving the respondent an opportunity to respond to a case. Um, so they are really flexible when it comes to an unanswered petition. And that's why a motion to default is one of the easiest things to defend against, as usually it just requires that we file an answer and enter an appearance of counsel. And typically the judge will either take it off the motion list or it will be voluntarily abandoned by the other party. That said, if you do see a motion for default, Get it to counsel as soon as possible, because while the court is flexible, you really are subjecting yourself to a judgment on a case where you really have had no opportunity to even review. Now we'd like to discuss some examples of how we handle claim petitions when they first cross our desks. 
So like Colin just mentioned, um, when a claim petition is filed, that's really our first interaction with the claim. Um, so the most common and easiest claim petition to deal with is when the claim petition is filed, it's accepted, medical treatment was authorized, temporary disability benefits were authorized and paid. There's no real issues going on. The only issue is that of permanent disability. So what we will do is get that answer filed within 30 days of receipt of the claim petition. Um, like Colin mentioned, actually, we like to get them filed within 48 hours um, just so that we can get put on notice of the case um, with court. Um but what will this happen is, is, go ahead, Colin. I was going to say, this is actually the most preferred way to have a claim petition come in, actually, because it's an accepted claim, treatment is being authorized, and everything is going smoothly, and we just have to typically monitor this type of claim. We don't really have to take any drastic action right when it comes comes to our uh, comes into our office. Exactly. So what will happen is petitioner finishes out treatment, um, any temp that's owed will be paid, and then we'll move forward and get a permanency exam. Um, once counsel gets their permanency exam, we exchange and then we'll discuss settlement. And this is really, you know, your, your run of the mill case um, will settle out permanency um, and then the case will be closed. Uh, so those are typically done um, fairly quickly. And it really depends on whether or not that treatment is done. So then the second right. type that we will see is when they file solely for permanency. So treatment's already concluded and they're really just filing for, for permanency. So you just move forward and get that permanency exam. Um, there is the 26 week rule uh, where, you know, upon maximum medical improvement, we have 26 weeks to obtain a permanency exam. Um, and right. this really and is to afford the petitioner time to cure or um, to heal really. And recover right. and from injury. That's important in certain cases because sometimes if treat, if if we get the case, it comes in at permanency, just because a case comes in permanency doesn't mean that treatment ended months or months or a year ago. It, it, it could mean it ended five days before we got the claim petition. So that's why that 20, waiting that 26 weeks or close to that is, a, is important because it allows petitioners' injuries to rest and see what the actual complaints are. However, we do... We do want to get I do that want to just touch exam. on one thing. So, Colin, so just going back to, um, you know, when that claim petition is filed solely for permanency, um, maybe we don't schedule that permanency exam right away. So even if the 26 weeks has elapsed um, and the case is now ripe for that permanency exam, we do want to take some time and investigate petitioner's prior medical history. So that ISO claim search, um, any prior treating doctor information that we do have or we're able to get from counsel, we are going to want to get that so that we can get um, petitioner's prior medical history because in the end, we could be um, entitled to a credit. And I think it's important to get that information before our permanency exam so that we can get all the records over to the doctor um, so that he can review it and assess any priors. I completely agree with that because when a case comes in at permanency, we may not have any records. We just may be told, hey, here's the claim petition, petitioners at MMI. We need to collect all those medical records to find out what type of treatment was had. Was there a surgery? Was it just PT and conservative treatment? Was it somewhere in between? Do the medical records uh, reference a pre-existing injury or a prior surgery to the same body part? And if we get a permanency exam before we find out about that pre-existing uh, condition, 
it, it, it could hurt our argument that we're entitled to a credit given that the doc, our permanency doctor was unaware. Now, we can possibly get around that with an addendum report, but it's, it's more important to do the investigation first and then get the exam. I think Brittany would agree with that. I, I do agree. And I get the question all the time, you know, should we move forward with the permanency exam or should we, you know, push it out and prolong this case and sort of wait for the records? And I think you really have to determine that based on, you know, your facts of your specific case. Because if you have, you know, five motor vehicle accidents within the past, you know, five years that show up on an ISO claim search and you're talking about, you know, a neck or a back case, then yeah, I want those medical records before a permanency exam. But if we're talking about a sprained ankle and, you know, we have unspecified injuries identified in an ISO claim search in connection with maybe a prior motor vehicle accident eight years ago, then maybe they're not so relevant or important. So I think you really have to determine that based on on the facts of your case. Right. And, that, and that's usually a body part specific, too, because the, the awards are higher for anything on a partial total basis, head, neck, shoulder, hip. But if it's on the leg, the foot, the hand, the, it, a motor vehicle accident may not have pertained to that body part, whereas the, 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 the big injuries of the neck and the back would. And you do learn a lot. I, I will say, the, I think the one thing that workers' comp doctors do better than even some private uh, doctors is get a really good medical history um, at that first evaluation. And that really answers the question, is there, is there any hint of pre-existing or prior surgeries? Because even, even if they say they had no prior, uh, prior injuries, they, uh, they may have just said, oh, I had a, a shoulder surgery seven or eight years ago. We don't really know why they had it. Uh, it could be completely unrelated to anything, but that could give us an argument that we are entitled to a credit. So we want to know that. And we want our permanency doctor to know that as well, because instead of him giving us a five related, he might give us a seven and a half with a two and a half related or a, or, with, or a five with a two and a half preexisting. Yeah, and I do think it's helpful when we go to settle the case and try to assert that um, credit for you know prior functional loss. Um, so when it comes down to you know trying to move the case as quickly as possible, um, getting those records um, quickly will definitely help you know move along the permanency exam um, so that we can ultimately get to you know our goal to to resolving the case. I will say one thing that does come up when a case comes in at quote, permanency when treatment is completed is a lot of the times petitioners' councils will be asking for more treatment. How do you typically handle that? So you're saying we get the claim petition in, they've been MMI'd, and now the claim petition comes in and they're requesting additional treatment? Yes. So, um, I mean, that happens all the time. My standard procedure is send them back to the doctor that MMI them. I mean, even if it's been six months since they've seen that doctor, send them back and um, send a standard, you know, a, a simple letter saying, you know, is this person um, or petitioner, um, do they continue to remain at maximum medical improvement? And if not, do they require additional medical treatment? And if they do require additional medical treatment, why was there an intervening um, event that occurred that you know maybe worsened their condition? Um, again, this is where that ISO claim surge comes in. You want to make sure that there's no accidents that occurred from the point that they were MMI up until their, this new request for medical treatment. Um, but most of the time, um, we will end up sending them back. Maybe they'll do another round of PT, something simple, and then they're quickly, fairly quickly um, MMI shortly after that. That's what I typically see. 
Uh, the other two, the other two instances I see in that are why, why we'd send back to the original treating doctor too. Is sometimes the petitioners don't come to their attorney until after treatment is finished, so their attorney was unaware of recommendations, and they found out, say, an MRI or a physical therapy wasn't uh, authorized. We can then get him back to the treating doc, original treater and get that, see if that treatment is still necessary, and if so, get it authorized. But the thing I'm finding more common lately is that petitioners' attorneys will request more treatment, but object uh, even after we send back to the original treating doctor. They actually want a second opinion, but don't come right out and say it. And so, and I was just going to just add to that too before you, before you just talked about um, the potential for a second opinion. I think it's so important to get them back to the original authorized treating doctor who initially MMI'd them because. They're the doctors that saw them at the onset of the injury. They're the ones that treated them. They're the ones that will know whether or not they need any additional medical treatment for that work-related condition. And per the statute and case law, they are supposed to be uh, considered a def- the deferential opinion as opposed to an IME doctor. Supposed to also, be, right? Supposed um. to be, but that doesn't <laughs> always happen to be the case. So a lot of the times a case will come in at MMI and we'll they'll ask for a second opinion. Now, typically... I tend to recommend the second opinion because usually they've had limited treatment and counsel's just going to go get their own need for treatment and file a motion, as we've previously discussed in another episode. So I always have a hard time, um, or I'm always hesitant, I guess I should say, recommending a second opinion because sometimes I feel like the second opinion puts us, you know, in between a rock and a hard place because- Now we have this MMI opinion, we have an opinion of the second opinion evaluator, and really the petitioner gets to choose which well, that's, which course he wants to go. I, I do agree with that. That is the danger of it. The other the other alternative is they get their own need for treatment, file a motion, and then we incur fees on the motion and still end up getting the second opinion anyway. However, the one good thing when it comes to a second opinion is we're avoiding that motion one, but we're also getting to pick a, pick the doctor as well, as opposed to when a motion's filed, the judge could just call a tie break doctor. And we can we have, we know the doctors that are like, uh, I know a couple doctors that are really good when I have a petitioner with symptom magnification that will then immediately MMI them again. So we have that ability to get them MMI pretty quickly. I find a lot of the times the second opinion does MMI them. However, there are the times treatment is recommended. Yeah, I agree. But so, I mean, for the purpose of this podcast, though, I am talking about claim petitions coming in when they're requesting additional treatment, um, getting it to getting moving it as quickly as possible, get them back to the original authorized treating doctor, you know, uh, you know, albeit if you have a request for a second opinion, that's obviously um, a different course that you would have to consider. But get them back to the treating doctor um, so that you can get that, you know, second MMI opinion. And you can really, you know, have some weight now to say we need to move forward with permanency exams Um, and you can sort of get it moving um, there. Right. And then that brings us to another example of a claim petition where the claim petition is filed. And that is our first notice of the injury. Uh, The carrier is unaware that an injury occurred on whatever date is on the claim petition. And the only information we tend to have is directly there on the claim petition. And typically, when that is the case, it usually involves unauthorized treatment because the petitioner may may or may not have reported the injury 
we're unaware at the time of receiving it. And then we find out later that there's some unauthorized treatment. A lot of the times this occurs with occupational exposure claims. And we're likely to deny this type of uh, claim petition as well, because when the first notice of injury is all we have, we don't really know much about the case. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and I certainly, um, if it's an occupational exposure claim petition, um, we're more than likely um, going to deny it based on that alone. Um, but when it is the first notice and it is a traumatic accident um, and we have no information, like we were talking about earlier, you can deny it pending um, investigation and or um, deny it outright. Because again, we have no information and it needs to be investigated. Um, with regard to unauthorized treatment, these sort of take a little bit longer because now we're sort of at the mercy of petitioner's attorney to provide us with the information that we need to get all of the necessary treating records to determine causation and determine, you know, the extent that these petitioners are injured. Um, and we're going to need all of these before we even proceed with a permanency exam. Um, a right. lot of times I do see these end up in um, a section 20 resolution without exams. There are judges that will not do um, section 20 resolutions, even on a denied case without exams. Um, so you still do have to proceed with that permanency exam, even if you are going to pursue a section 20 resolution. Um, and that's something that you can talk to your attorney about based on what venue you're in. But the other thing is with these, since it is unauthorized treatment, the judges will, uh, the judges that won't section 20 without exams will make us get permanency evaluations and we will have to collect all of the unauthorized records, make sure we get signed, we'll have to get signed HIPAAs from petitioner's attorney, which prolongs it because sometimes the petitioner doesn't return them quickly enough. Uh, sometimes the doctor's offices give us pushback because they, they want it. They yeah, like want for example, I just requested records and I actually, and we'll get into this in a little bit, but um, I have a motion pending and I requested records in connection with a prior accident to the same body part um, that occurred just, you know, a couple months before they're claiming that they had an accident with us. And so we got assigned HIPAA. We sent it to the doctor's office to subpoena the records. And now they're saying the doctor's office was bought out. We have to request records from a different department. So we did that. And now that department is sort of sending us somewhere else. So we're running around for these records that are really necessary to determine, you know, whether or not this petitioner's condition is causally related to this prior accident that occurred at home a couple months ago or to, you know, the work accident that he's claiming. I've also noticed because of the whole COVID shutdown, getting medical records is even unauthorized records is even harder because uh, even if a doctor had, say, previously three offices and all of them would ascertain uh, record requests, now only one office and one person is doing it, which which also makes it difficult. And it gets frustrating because, like Brittany said, we don't know if that accident is related or not. We don't get to see the medical records yet. So it's a lot of the times it, we will file a denial, uh, you either file a denial or a, that it's under investigation to protect us because it's easier to file a denial and then authorize treatment later rather than try to accept it originally with no information and then try to deny it after the fact. Yeah. And I think the, the takeaway for this too is the unauthorized treatment is there. Those cases are really hard to move quickly because again, we're at the mercy 
um, of, you know, the record requests departments, the, you know, the, the doctor's offices, petitioner's attorneys for providing the information. You know, sometimes it's necessary for us to file motions to compel the information. And then it's, if we don't get it, even with that, um, we'll file motions to dismiss. It's they're they're a little bit frustrating. Um, so it's so when you do see that, um, sort of flag it um, and I, just know that it, it will take a little bit more time than your typical authorized treatment case. I would also say on cases where either we file a denial or an investigation and the claim petitions first notice with unauthorized treatment, I do know some judges really don't like that petitioners under unauthorized treatment and want to try to correct that as quickly as possible. So they'll say collect the records and make us get our own need for treatment evaluation. Even though we've denied, potentially denied this case, we still are required to get it. And then what happens sometimes is the doctor will recommend treatment and he'll, he'll say it may or may, he'll say it's related. And the judge will say, look, I know you've denied it, but until you can show otherwise, we're going to have you authorize this treatment without prejudice. And that, yeah, that, and that's a really good point because so I'm I was sort of referring to the unauthorized treatment case that results in you know us getting permanency exams down the road and perhaps you know section twenty resolution. But Colin's right. I mean, sometimes you get these unauthorized treatment cases. Um, and the judge really pushes you, you know, once you get all the records, pushes you to get a need for treatment exam or really pushes you to pick up treatment until you can determine causation. Um, and those are even more difficult. And that actually has happened to me currently on a case where we, uh, we weren't providing treatment. The emotion was argued out. We had testimony and the judge said, pick up treatment without prejudice. But now I'm having the problem that since petitioner was treating unauthorized originally and now we're picking it up we can't get the records from the doctor because they're saying we're not the ones paying for it. I've had to send the order that the judge signed showing I've had to send the adjuster information, but the doctor's giving us a hard time. And unfortunately now I'm going to get a hard time from the judge too. And it's not really our fault because we're complying with the order. The unauthorized doctor is holding us up. And that's another issue that comes with it. When the judges make us take over treatment as well, that can slow things down because treatment could be recommended. The petitioner tells his attorney the surgery is recommended, and then they file another motion, even though we were trying to already comply. I agree. So it sort of takes us um, to you know the next scenario where a claim petition is filed, it's denied, but then we get a motion for med intemp immediately with the claim petition. And in fact, this has, um, this happened to me twice in the past week where you get your claim petition and on that same date, the motion for meta temp was filed. We haven't even reviewed um, any of the records yet. Um, you know, the adjuster, the client has no information about the case. And now we have this motion that we have to defend. Um, these are, these are difficult scenarios because again, we don't have much information to go off of. And now time is of the essence because we have to move quickly. The other thing I'd like to interject real quick is that even though the motion is filed and it is normally by the rules required to list for 30 days and we have 21 days to answer, I know my judges, and I believe Brittany, yours are as well, calling you beforehand and giving you even less time to uh, learn about the case. And now they can't enter a motion or an order on us till the motion is ripe 30 days later. But what the judges are basically saying is if you don't have this corrected by the day it lists, I'm going to enter an order with you, which further complicates this topic. Yeah. And I think too, with the, um, with the virtual hearings now and the ability to sort of 
communicate so much more easily than we than we used to be able to. Um, the judges are are very apt to just call you and say, um, you know, eleven o'clock today, virtual hearing. Please log on to discuss the motion. Um, and again, we don't have any information about it, and now we have to log on and sort of defend um, a motion when we have absolutely no discovery or information to go off of. And this this will happen, uh, and this will happen. We mentioned it a couple minutes ago, but this is why it's so important that we know uh, that we answer the claim petition as quickly as possible. Because sometimes these denied these cases that come on, they're denied with a motion. They've used the incorrect car. They file with the incorrect carrier, or uh, didn't send notice, or have no attorney. And while the judge knows we're typically the ones who represent a certain carrier, they'll give us a call. But other times it's a it's a new it's a totally new empo- uh, employer and nobody knows it and it sits there and then you find out and the judge and counsel are already annoyed because it's been the third or fourth listing and we still haven't entered an appearance which further which further uh, complicates it because the judges are much more inclined to make us do something even if we don't have the records because it it, it lingered on their list. Yeah. And then that's when it really gets into, you know, the judge entering an order, even without prejudice, um, compelling the respondent to pay for treatment or temporary disability benefits when, again, we've had no opportunity to review the case. So when you do see these, um, just just know that um, time is of the essence and um, you need to move very quickly um, and get everything um, necessary to defend your case. So if that means witness statements, if that means a need for treatment exam, if that means prior medical records, um, all that needs to be done in order, you know, to avoid um, an order that might not be your responsibility, really. Now, I will say, it to while we've basically scared everybody with, <laughs> with this type of example, do we uh, typically when these when it's going to be a denied case, first notice, and a motion comes with it. These motions are typically fairly weak. They have a, a weak need for treatment that just says orthopedic care is needed, or they have a litany of unauthorized records that say an MRI is needed, but nothing in the nothing that the doctor says, oh, this accident occurred at work. So we do have defenses against it for sure. Don't let don't get us wrong. But typically the judge's response is even when we can knock down those arguments is okay, well, go get a need for treatment exam. And again, you're still stuck with whatever that recommendation is, unfortunately, because we had, we're, we're, we're on a motion and the judges pretty much keep them on a very tight leash these days. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, and that is, that's a good point. We don't want to scare you. Um, uh, my whole point really to this discussion is just move, move quickly. Um, and if you do have viable defenses and strong arguments, um, perhaps, you know, witness statements, then, then definitely move to get those so that we have what we need to really protect your interests and make your arguments um, so that the judge can say, oh, you know, maybe this is not compensable. And then they're not so inclined to enter an order so quickly. Right. And that actually brings us into a that, uh, pretty good uh, topic. Now, now we've talked to you about all the authors authorized reasons that the cases are authorized and how we do it. Now we file a case that we know is denied, but there's a variety of different reasons um, to deny a case. I mean, a lot of times it'll be just a general denial, but sometimes we'll have very specific information such as um, well, I think it's important too, Colin, to break up your denial into two parts. So like, 
So we have um, denials based on the facts, and we'll talk about you know the defenses that go with those sort of facts. But then you also have your you know your medical opinion issues, your your denials based on you know causation, um, liability, um, and we'll get into those separately. But well, as far as go ahead, Colin. As far as I was going to say, the the fact specific ones are much easier to argue, in my opinion. Because absolutely, because the the medical issue that the judge is typically okay. Well, let's get another doctor. But the fact specifics and that that that's a fun one to argue because a lot of the times it, the the in comp the cases are accepted. But you can you can uh, you there are a variety of reasons, such as the accident did not occur in the course and scope of the employment. That that's a big one. Well, yeah, I mean, and that brings up a, a slew of issues in and of itself. But when when we talk about the fact issues um, that really support the basis for a denial, sometimes all we need to support that denial is, you know, a witness statement or a witness that's willing to testify um, as to, you know, discrepancies or um, the issues going on in the case and with the allegations um, in the claim petition. So, so Colin's talking about, you know, maybe the injury, you know, the allegation um, from the respondent side is that the injury did not arise out of the course and scope of employment. And really, we could get into um, certain scenarios. But, you know, one scenario that I see all the time is, you know, traveling, um, whether or not that injury during travel was in the course and scope of employment. Um, we see with you know the going and coming rule, the routine travel you know is not compensable, um, that kind of stuff. And really, all we would need is a witness statement or a witness to testify in support of that. And then, um, and you know, really, the case law sort of sort of trumps on whether that's going to be compensable or not. And when you say witness, it doesn't actually mean a witness who like in the, and typically in Brittany's example, where you're traveling from home to work, uh, to your work. And that there's, that's where the argument comes. If you're traveling from a job site A to job site B, that will be considered within the course and scope, but home to your office is, is not generally considered course and scope. And that would be the type of uh, witness we need someone say from HR or who does the hiring that knows this is the job title. This is what's within the, the, the scope of his employment. These are his duties. This falls outside of it. That's the type of witness we would need. We don't specifically mean a witness to the motor vehicle accident. That's a good clarification, Colin, because I actually have um, um, have seen a couple of situations where perhaps the transportation to and from work may have been provided um, and or, you know, may have been paid for or the petitioner was maybe, you know, reimbursed for this transportation to and from work. And that totally changes the facts with um, whether or not that accident that occurred during that transportation is compensable. Um, and again, someone from HR, someone who really has knowledge about um, this transportation and how it's provided and who pays for it um, would be a, a great witness to come in and testify um, as to why the injury is not compensable. And then the other is uh, deviations from work, whether it be a minor deviation or a major deviation. Now, a minor deviation, uh, well, the easiest one is you clock out of work, you're walking to your car and you trip and fall and hurt your hurt your knee. That's usually considered within the course and scope and not considered a, a major deviation because there's there's pretty clear case law that you're allowed uh, you're allowed time you're considered still in your employment. 
uh, when you're walking, when you clock out and walk to your car. However, it could be considered a major deviation is say you clock out, you hang out in the, the break room for an hour and then proceed to walk out and trip in the parking lot. We'd have a pretty strong argument that it, that's a major deviation. I agree. And there's um, specific case law to really um, pinpoint what is a minor and a major deviation. I mean, there's case law that says, you know, um, petitioner was going to and from uh, different job sites um, on his way to one job site. He um, stopped at a post office to, you know, run some personal errands. And the court in that case really said that personal errands um, are a major deviation. And, you know, if an accident occurs while you're running those personal errands, um, then it's not compensable. So the court was very clear on that. Um, so if you if you have a situation where that arises, you know, obviously consult your attorney um, and, you know, we're more than happy to discuss with you and go over the case law and what is minor and major. Another one that happens is when a uh, petitioner has a job where they're sent to certain job sites in different states and they go for, say, a weekend and they get hurt while they're out for dinner. While technically they are out there for the benefit of the company, the question then comes in, who was paying for certain things on the trip? Was the company only paying for uh, just the employment? Did petitioner have to pay for his meals? If petitioner had to pay for his meals, we probably have a stronger argument that getting hurt at the restaurant is not our our, our uh, responsibility. But if we were paying for the whole trip, meals, everything, I have seen a judge say we should pick this up because – that's how they interpret the case law, but that's a that's a much more fact specific. Uh, yeah, I do find that the more the more the employer is involved in what's in in the action that's being taken um, that causes the accident or when the accident occurs, um, the more likely it's going to be found compensable. Um, and you know, the more personal it is to the petitioner, the more likely it's going to be found to be not compensable. And that's why when people get hurt in the parking lot, the question is, who controls that parking lot? Is that a, is, does the employer control the parking lot? Does the employer direct their employees to park in that area? Or is this just a big open lot that they that is controlled by someone else and they're walking into work? That, that could also uh, play into whether or not it's a work accident. Yeah, and we could really get into detail with all these defenses. And in fact, it actually might make a great... Um, you know, an episode, a later or future episode um, to go over the defenses and really talk about the details and the nuances of them, um, because they, they are very interesting and the case law is very interesting. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes it's very clear on what is and is not compensable. And sometimes it's not very clear. And you're sort of at the mercy of the judge to make a decision on what, whether something's compensable or not. Right. And a another example that we have uh, is the wrong date of injury. Say, you'll get a claim petition. It'll come in saying an injury occurred on July 12th, 2022. Uh, the carrier will tell us, hey, we have no information about an accident on July 12th, 20 2022 from the back. There's two scenarios here. The first is it may be just an incorrect date and a carrier will say, hey, on July 10th, we have an injury that was reported that uh, has the exact same facts that we were described. In that case, petitioner probably just was incorrect on the date and we would likely accept it, potentially accept that type of case. However, I do see this a lot where petitioners have very short uh, 
jobs, job stints at certain type of jobs. And they'll say, I, I guarantee you I was heard on the 12th and there'll be no evidence of any reporting. And we typically can deny that. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, and again, I think that goes to with the, the uh, you know, deny it before you decide to accept it, because it's always easier to accept it later than than to deny it later after you've already agreed to accept it. But something that I see all the time is, um, you know, a, a claim petition comes in and it's being denied based on prior injuries. Um, and basically, you know, the carrier is saying like they've had this prior injury. Um, we don't think this is related. They, you know, said that they've had chronic back problems and now all of a sudden they're claiming that their back hurts as a result of work. Um, and maybe you have, you know, paperwork that they filled out for FMLA. Maybe they were on a leave of absence, um, something like that. I see this all the time. And again, I do think that that's a um, basis for a denial. I don't think it's going to be as easy to get an outright dismissal on that because sort of the burden sort of shifts. So, so now they have to prove that they have a material worsening. And, you know, again, that's a topic in and of itself, but they have to prove that, um, that the job, that the, the work exposure has caused a material worsening to their pre-existing condition. And that's where, you know, the medical records become really relevant again. Right. And to give an example, you had a private motor vehicle accident where you hurt your back. Uh, you've, you've had some treatment, you've had some injections, and now you work at a job where you do a lot of lifting. And the one day you lift a box and tweak your back, that's a, that's a good case to potentially uh, cite a, uh, ask for a denial, uh, file a denial, because it's likely the motor vehicle was the uh, true cause of that issue rather than it being a, an accident. But that, like you said, the medical records will be the ultimate determination. Exactly. There. And I, I think too, um, in that scenario, um, sometimes we would see a motion for med intent filed. Um, and I would move quickly and get a knee for treatment exam, you know, and you ask the doctor, you know, is this a material worsening or is this a minor um, aggravation of this, you know, significant pre-existing um, condition that's been going on for perhaps 20 years. I mean, I've had cases where I showed 15 years of of issues going on, then they work for us for three years, or I'm sorry, three months. And, you know, they're trying to claim that this was a material aggravation. I've had doctors say, no, this is a minor aggravation. And that's not the standard as far as I'm concerned. And this is where a what seems like a simple issue, because we have our doctor saying, that it's not related and it's related to, like you discussed, all this prior injury, petitioner and counsel may dig in and say, no, it happened to me at work and they won't accept the MMI finding. And then we'll have to start bringing in witnesses, not just fact witnesses, but also doctors to discuss this. And it, it, it further prolongs the case, even though we have the strong argument right now. And, and that can be frustrating because we're supposed to be given the treating doctor is supposed to be given deference, but when petitioners tend to object and get their own exam, the judges will just say, all right, if they're not going to agree, I'll, I'll, I'll try it. And we'll, we'll go through the whole thing and I'll make a decision at the end and you'll both be, you'll both live with the outcome. Yeah. I do see a tr the trend moving away from giving the treating doctor deference, even though there is case law to support it. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. And I think it's been, that's been expedited due to the doctor closures with COVID because it was taking longer time to get people in with doctors, collect the medical records. And 
the judges the judges finding at least that's how I've noticed I've noticed in that type of case typically um but yes I find that the judge so we could go we could like continue down this road of it you know going through the defenses and again that would be a great topic for the future um but I just wanted before we uh depart today I just want to sort of go over that you know the other basis for a denial, you know, you might have, you know, this great defense and it might be fact specific um, is what I was talking about earlier, you know, your difference in medical opinions. And again, this really goes back to um, what we talked about, you know, when a claim petition comes in, the petitioner was MMI'd, um, but you're getting a request for treatment. And it sort of goes back to what Colin was talking about, about second opinions and whether that's necessary. But again, move to get um, whatever you need to defend your case. So if it's that MMI opinion that that you have, um, that would be enough to to defend your case. Um, But what they would likely do is go out and get their own opinion, typically with a hired gun, um, with a doctor that they know is going to recommend at least physical therapy, at least an orthopedic evaluation. Um, and then, you know, we could go up, they could go up against our MMI opinion, our doctor, but what, what typically will be done, I will have judges either recommend a tiebreaker, um, or recommend sending them back to the original treating doctor. So my judges are sort of split on, on where they are with that. I would say that depends on what the need for treatment evaluation says. So say the need that the one that they go get says, just see an orthopedic doctor. My judges will agree, go back to the original mm-hmm. treater. But if, say, injections occurred in the treatment and then they were MMI'd and the new, uh, the NARNFT says surgery, the judge, my judges typically will say, all right, well, now we're in a difference of opinion here because surgery wasn't recommended. That doctor is going to disagree with the surgery recommendation anyway. Let's move to the tiebreaker. And uh, there is one last one. It's rare. It happens occasionally in occupational cases uh, where a claim petition will come in with a verified second injury fund case. That's incredibly rare, but that usually happens because they found out some carrier had uh, a few months of coverage on a case that had already been going for a long time and you're just pulled in. So if that happens, give us a call and we can discuss that much further. Uh, we don't really want to get bogged down in that typically because that's such a rare occurrence. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, a verified petition and, you know, second injury fund involvement, that's that again, that's a whole topic in and of itself, um, which we can certainly um, further discuss with you on the side. If you want to give us a call or um, if you think that it would make for a good topic, we can even do a future podcast on that. I, I agree. I think we found a couple of topics that we'll touch on going forward uh, in future episodes. Definitely uh, course and scope of employment and further into the defenses. But yeah, compensability altogether would be a great topic. Right. And if, if any of you listening uh, would like to suggest a topic, please feel free to reach out uh, to us and we will gladly take uh, into consideration any topic or answer any questions on topics we've already had. And if you want us to readdress something, we'll gladly do that. But uh, please make sure to like and subscribe this podcast so that you're notified as to new episodes each month wherever you uh, get your podcasts from. And we look forward to you enjoying the Chartwell Chronicles.